Thanks, Josh. Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 5. We continue today our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Acts. We have been covering, for the most part, about a chapter at a time. If you don't do that in a book like Acts, which is narrative, it's stories, true stories, but stories nonetheless, you tend to repeat yourself a lot and nobody wants that. So we're covering larger sections at a time to capture the main idea of these stories and to come away with application for our church now 20 centuries beyond the initial writing of these stories. The truth of the matter is, as we approach a book like this, it's sometimes difficult for us to place ourselves in their context or to see through their eyes. And so part of the work that we have to do as interpreters of Scripture, and let me just pause for a moment and say that this is not just for me to do for you. Our elders want you to be living in light of the Word of God all the time. Here's a few ways you can do that. You can take notes and then go home and meditate on those notes and see where God's Spirit would lead you to other portions of Scripture. You can learn from the method that we use here of going through passages of Scripture verse by verse, placing them in their near and distant context, and read on your own. As I sat down with some of my friends yesterday at our men's retreat that we were able to participate in, one of the things that's evident for all of us is that so often we just allow life to happen to us, and we don't push back against it and direct the steps that we take. And one of the ways that we push back and direct our steps is by living under the sway of the Word of God. And so before I close this little parenthesis, I call you, wherever you are, whatever state you find yourself in today, to not only take in the Word of God today, for the living God is speaking to us through His Word, but to make this a regular practice. And if you find that difficult, then let us help you. That's why we're here. So we'll close off that parenthesis. But we are a church that takes the word seriously. And part of our responsibility as the people of God is to look into these ancient stories and find life in them, to find instruction in them that our eternal God might be glorified and that we might find our satisfaction in Him. It's an interesting passage we will read through today. Because it's a bit front-loaded with an individual story, we're going to slow down a little bit today and just cover about a half a chapter. But before we do that, I want to remind you of where we've been and to give you a little bit of structure, a little bit of a road map so you know where we've been and where we're going. This is the early period of the church, the various, the very earliest days, earliest weeks even, Jesus has ascended back to heaven after His resurrection and conquest over sin and death. He has sent His Spirit and fullness of power to fill His people, these believers, these who have embraced the gospel. And as they stand and testify to the grace of Jesus, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Thousands of people are being converted and added to this early church. The apostles, those that we knew as the disciples in the four Gospels, have turned from doubting, wayward cowards into bold, Jesus-trusting, Spirit-empowered evangelists. We saw last week in Acts chapter 4 that they were arrested. Why were they arrested? not for any law-breaking, not for any immorality, but because they had dared to heal a man in the name of Jesus. And this incensed, it 
angered greatly the council, the Jewish council. They arrested Peter and John, threw them in prison, brought them out the next day and charged them that they were no longer allowed to do these things in the name of Jesus. Peter and John's response at the end after they were charged with this is, should we obey you or should we obey God? They go back to their friends, back to the church, and they pray. They don't pray for further protection. They pray that God would grant them boldness. It was striking once we all got home last Sunday afternoon and realized what had happened in Sutherland Spring, Texas, that people who had stood for the reality of their faith and gathered in peace were slaughtered in a church not completely unlike ours. We never know, do we? We don't expect such persecution. We don't expect such violence and danger. But the apostles, as they led these people in Jerusalem, had a conviction that their greatest good, their greatest treasure, was not in preserving their lives. The thing that would make them happiest was not a life of tranquility with no troubles. Their greatest good was to know Jesus and to make Him known. And as the church continued to grow and as the gospel continued to change these people, we saw that at the end of chapter 4, there wasn't a needy person among them. See that in verse 34. People were selling their extra things and donating it to the church so that the apostles could distribute it to those who had need, so that there wasn't a needy person among them. And as we learned last week, the gospel changes what we fear. The apostles no longer were willing to live in fear of the Jewish officials, for they feared God more. And the gospel also changes what we treasure. You saw that at the end of the chapter last week when people shared what they had, things that were valuable to them, so that everybody around them could have what they needed. Chapter 5 is a bit of a mirror image to chapter 4. If chapter 4 ends with generosity, gospel-permeated generosity, gospel-induced sharing, the beginning of Acts chapter 5 is the opposite of that. Pride-permeated sharing, which is not real sharing, and there are deep consequences for it. And then at the end of the chapter, in fact, the bulk of the end of the chapter, which is about, once again, whenever the council gets mad at the apostles and charges them not to preach in the name of Jesus. In fact, as we will learn as we continue into chapter 5, they were actually beaten this time. It wasn't just an imprisonment. So, Acts chapters 4 and 5 are mere images of one another. The bookends of the section of these two chapters is that the apostles are faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ despite the consequences. But the middle, the meat of the sandwich, so to speak, Acts chapter 4, ends with spirit-filled, gospel-permeated generosity, and chapter 5 begins with pride-induced sharing, which we will now read about. So, Read with me now, please, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, 
but to God, and specifically to God's Spirit. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You're not expecting that, right? You're all checking your little white lies, aren't you? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. It's a trick of all good parents, right? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Obviously. Verse 12. How many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles? And they were all together in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. May God bless to us and teach us through the reading of His Word. So today, we are going to talk about the Spirit-filled community. And first of all, in verses 1-11, through 11, we find that the Spirit-filled community will not be satisfied with sin. Now, that second part of that sentence has a couple of dimensions to it. First of all, the Spirit will do what is necessary to not allow us to be satisfied with sin. And Jesus says in John's Gospel that He will send His Spirit, the Comforter, who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Part of His role is to expose sin in the hearts of His people. The second dimension to the second part of that sentence is that as He does this, we will learn that sin will not satisfy us. So, dimension number one, the Spirit will not rest. He has been called the hound of heaven. He will not rest while sin permeates the people of God. And because He does this, we will learn that sin will not satisfy us. I've likened the end of chapter 4 and now the first 11 verses of chapter 5 to the middle of the sandwich. At the end of chapter 4, you find people so overwhelmed with the gospel that they were willing to give up what they had. The gospel changed what they treasured, and so they gave up some of their treasures because they learned to treasure other things. They treasured Christ, and they treasured Christ's people. What you see at the end of chapter 4 is significant curse reversal. One of the dimensions of the curse that has fallen upon all of us under which we all rest is that we fear that we won't have enough and so we hoard. And though we see that people around us have needs, we don't think we have enough and so we get selfish and we hold it back. What happened when the early church saw the boldness of Peter and John, these former cowards? What happened when they saw their own hearts transforming? Curse reversal. They began to live differently from the way that they once had. But not everybody, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. To whatever degree, they had some wealth. 
Jerusalem had wealthy people in its environs. Predominantly, Jerusalem would have been a relatively poor city, but there were some that had a lot more. That's the way it basically works everywhere, right? Ananias and Sapphira had a piece of property and they sold it. Now they could have done whatever they wanted to do with that money. That is clarified in Peter's words to them. When it was unsold, it was theirs. After it was sold, the value that they received from the sale, it was theirs. They could have kept it and done whatever they wanted. They could have bought a yacht and gone to the Mediterranean, if there were such things. They could have bought a summer home out in Mount Carmel. They could have taken a trip to Mesopotamia or to the wonders of Egypt. And nobody could have gotten mad at them. There was not some sort of litmus test created in the first church for how you spent your money. You could do what you wanted with it. But they saw some of their brothers and sisters, people like Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, selling some of what they had to give to others. And they wanted to get in on that. But they didn't want to get in on that because they wanted to share what they had. They didn't want to get in on that and sharing because their hearts had been transformed. They wanted to get in on that because people who gave things away were respected. People who gave things away to those who had less than them were loved. They were appreciated. And though Jesus teaches in the Gospels that when we give to those who have less than us, that we shouldn't allow our left hand to know what our right hand is doing, that's hard. These people wanted to get in on the game. They wanted to be respected. So the motivation of their heart to share what they had, some of their wealth, it didn't come from a pure place. It didn't come from a heart of generosity. In fact, ironically, if you think about it, their sharing came from hearts of greed. That's twisted, right? Now, none of us have ever done that, right? None of us have ever done something nice for another person because we didn't want to be thought poorly of. In fact, if we're being honest, and my thick irony now will cease, if we're being honest, the truth of the matter is we have frequently done the right things for the wrong reasons. That was Ananias and Sapphira. The right thing for the wrong reasons. And this is what often happens in an assembly of people. So, so let's just peel the veneer of our hearts back a little bit collectively and let's take a look inside at some of the nastiness. We become acutely aware over time as we walk with God that we can't measure up to God. Now, of course, the answer to that is the gospel, right? The gospel is our only hope to relate to God. It's not just for conversion, initial salvation. We need the message of the gospel every day, that we are accepted in Christ. So, therefore, we can repent. Therefore, we can be patient as we change over time. But if we don't turn to the gospel as our hope while we change, if we don't turn to the gospel in repentance, knowing that God delights in forgiving His people, then what we inevitably start doing is comparing ourselves to other people. Now, at the risk of being sarcastic again, I know you've never done that. Of course you've done it. We all do it. If we are not resting in the gospel on a consistent basis that we are accepted in Christ by God, we will inevitably start comparing ourselves to other people, and that is a deep and dark rabbit hole. And there's no end to it. 
And then what you will start doing is excusing really bad behavior. And that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Despite the transformative effect of the Spirit in their hearts, and and I mean that collectively, the hearts of the church, there was still sin in among them. Look with me, please, at Joshua 7. got the first five books of the Old Testament that we call the Pentateuch, recorded by Moses. Moses dies, and Joshua assumes leadership and takes the people into Canaan, into the Promised Land. As they do so, as they enter into this Promised Land, they encounter cities that they must conquer for their own protection politically militarily, and even more importantly for their hearts, where God does not want them to dwell among people who are evil and wicked. So, God is going to punish these evil, wicked cities, sometimes in very dramatic ways. And so, you find that in chapter 6, the famous story of Jericho, when the people of Israel march around the walls of Jericho, and on the seventh day shout, and the walls fall down, and they kill the people of Jericho and plunder them. One of the stipulations of the plundering is that all the plunder has to be devoted to God. All the gold and silver and precious things will be put in the treasury. God tells them, don't keep any of it for yourself. Well, if you know the next chapter in Joshua, chapter 7, they now go to a much smaller city, a city called Ai. Not as fortified as Jericho, not as well populated as Jericho, And Joshua, as a good military commander, listens to the spies that he sends out, and they send a small company of men because they think they'll rout them. They're fresh off the victory in Jericho and think they have the world by the tail. But this small little unfortified city sends them running and kills 36 of their men. No small number of casualties. Joshua's very upset after the results of this in verse 6 and tears off his clothes, falls to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, verse 7, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? They were at the pinnacle of joy after Jericho, and now they're in the depths of despair. Verse 8, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? How could you allow Jericho to happen? And then now this, it doesn't make any sense. And if everybody in Canaan hears about this, that we're weak, we're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And then God responds to him in verse 10. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, some of the plunder. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And then God gives Joshua this scheme whereby he can determine who it is. It turns out it's a man named Achan and his family. Achan is singled out, confesses that he has buried some treasure under the ground in his tent, brings them out. It's once again devoted to God. But Achan and his entire family are stoned, and then they burn their remains with fire. And a valley called Achor is known throughout Israel's history as the place where Achan's family is buried as a reminder that God does not put up with sin in His people. When you say, that's Old Testament. God worked differently back then. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to a troubled church. Church with a lot of potential, but a church with a lot of problems. Look what Paul says here, beginning of 1 Corinthians 5. 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. There would not have been a biological mother. There would have been other things that Paul would have said here, probably his stepmother. And you are arrogant, verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, you cannot put up with this sin. Look in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They thought they were sophisticated. They thought perhaps they were even being patient and gracious. But Paul says, this is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of sin permeates the whole church. Cleanse out, verse 7, the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If it was awful for Achan and his family to have sinned, how much more is it awful for us to allow sin to go unnoticed and undealt with because now Christ, the true Passover, has come. We are the promised, redemptive, covenant people of God. We must take sin very seriously. And so, the Spirit-filled community will not be satisfied with sin. He won't allow it. And as He teaches us, we will learn that it cannot please us. It's interesting here in Acts chapter 5 that we find the personhood of the Spirit declared. People don't really struggle so much with the deity of the Spirit, that He is God, but whether He is a distinct person of the Trinity. But notice in verse 3 that Peter says that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. You lie to a person. This Holy Spirit is not merely a force or a manifestation of God the Father or God the Son. He is an individual person within the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. And once again in verse 4, Peter clarifies that Ananias has not lied to men, but to God, the third person of the Trinity. And the third person of the Trinity is at work among us, that we will not be satisfied with sin. And he does something very dramatic here something that I dare say we've never seen. I think sometimes in an effort to uphold the love of God, to convince people that God is gracious and merciful, that we can unwittingly underplay His righteousness and His justifiable wrath against sin. We don't just do that as we share the good news with unbelieving neighbors. Sometimes we do it in our own churches. We excuse things. The Proverbs declare to us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it doesn't mean to be in dread fear of Him. In other words, we are not fearful once we have come to faith in Jesus of condemnation. And yet we should have a reverent awe of the one true living God. As you see people encountering God in the Old Testament, like Moses, or Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy, or the apostles in the Mount of Transfiguration, or John several times in the book of Revelation, what do you find these saints doing? They fall down before His face in reverent awe, not out of fear of condemnation, but they know they're sinful and they are in the presence of pure, utter holiness. We learned recently as we studied through the book of Ephesians together that God through His Spirit is making us, making this local church into a dwelling place for Himself, like a temple, so to speak. And what does He want that temple to be like? 
to be pure and holy, to proclaim His glory. And so the Spirit will relentlessly be at work in our individual and collective hearts to expose sin and to convince us that it cannot satisfy us. What must it have been like for these young men, these pallbearers? I don't think they had been given that title, but at least on this memorable day, that was their job. Like you have apostles and elders and deacons and pallbearers. They would have told this story. Not everybody would have been present for this, but they would have spread the news around. And word spread quickly. And we know in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Though we do not see this normally in our experience, the Spirit is doing something very important here at the early days of this church. What is that? He is establishing that this is a new covenant community that this is about total transformation. This is not about just escaping the scary fires of hell, real and frightening though they are. This is about total transformation. You cannot claim Jesus as Savior if He will not be Lord. You cannot claim to be part of the people of God if you are not willing to undergo transformation, to change from who you were into who God has designed you to be. The purpose of our salvation is not just that we escape hell. The purpose of our salvation is that God is glorified through the restoration of image bearers. Now, to be sure, that is a process. But the Spirit here in the early days of the church wanted to clarify that you couldn't just get away with skating by. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted. You couldn't wear a mask. In other words, you couldn't live righteously on the outside, drawing favor from others, hoping others would feel good about you, but inside be dead. Wasn't that the indictment upon the Pharisees? On the outside, you look okay, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. Now, a passage like this, on the one hand, should probably not make us fear that before we walk out those doors in the back, that we might fall dead if we don't confess everything we've ever done, or perhaps everything we've done since last time we confessed. I'm not telling you that I or that the rest of the elders have some sort of homicidal power in our words. We don't, and we wouldn't even try. But on the other hand, I would say that a passage like this, these 11 verses, do suggest to us that we take careful inventory of our lives. How are we walking? What are we treasuring? God sees. If we are in Christ, we need not fear condemnation, but nevertheless, He sees. He knows every white lie that we excuse. Now, maybe you've not told a whopper in a long time, but I dare say more than a handful of us have been somewhat deceitful in recent days. He sees the pride that is simmering under the surface that directs much of what we do, like Ananias and Sapphira, who thought they could hide Maybe, maybe they had for a while. Maybe they had gotten away with it for a while. Maybe they knew the Old Testament well, and they sat in Bible studies, and people thought they were pious and holy. But inside, they just wanted people to be impressed with what they knew. 
Perhaps on the surface their marriage looked okay, but at home they screamed at each other and frankly hated each other. But they had to keep up appearances. The Holy Spirit sees, He knows. And because He loves us, and has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, He will not allow us to be satisfied with inferior things. He will come after us in love. And this reminds us of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines every son that He receives. If He doesn't discipline us, that should freak us out. But if He disciplines us, that's a sign of His love. And so I say to you today, if you sense that He is disciplining you or that even perhaps right now He is exposing something in you that is unconfessed and hidden and ugly, He sees. But the conviction is because He loves you. And so I call you now to confess, to repent, and to turn from it. This was a big deal not just for Ananias and Sapphira, their nuclear family. It was a problem for the church family, as you see in the case of Achan, or this adulterous, incestuous man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so whether you realize it or not, and this is a good warning for all of us, and I say it to you with love, but I say it to you with sobriety, whether we believe it or not, our sin affects a lot of people. That means that perhaps something even that is unconfessed and unknown can affect the purity and solidarity and even the mission of a church like this. Because this story comes in the middle of mission. If chapters 4 and 5 are mere images of one another, what are they primarily teaching us? That the church should be on mission boldly. Why this story in the middle? Because mission will be compromised if sin goes undiagnosed and undealt with. In other words, we cannot live for the glory of God and we cannot spread the knowledge of the glory of God if we allow sin to go unconfessed. And so, I say to you in love, but with sobriety, today is a day of introspection. We'll talk more about this at the end. I've seen this personally. I've seen it here. I will not name any names, but I've seen it here. We, we've seen when sin has gone undiagnosed, and you could almost feel palpably that something was wrong, but you couldn't quite put your finger on it, and, and then God would expose something, and then perhaps a family would, would have to go because of undiagnosed sin that they would not deal with once it was diagnosed. And then the church received joy and transformative power after that happened. Or perhaps for a while, sin went undiagnosed, but when it was diagnosed and dealt with, the people stayed. That's the much better thing, and life comes back into the body. I've seen that. I saw this as a young man in my youth group. I've talked to you about my past before, perhaps the most powerful period of my life. And that was a horrible, rotten sinner when my early teenage years, things I wouldn't even want to speak of now in public. One of the things that happened to me, whether it was through new birth or through deep repentance and change, was that I stopped doing those things. And my other friends in the youth group stopped doing them too. And our world turned upside down. People began converting to Christianity that you never would have expected. Most of the kids in my youth group were part of a public school. I went there. Two of the people in my large high school that were known for a very illicit living came to faith in Jesus. Both of them today are pastors leading churches if you would have asked me when I was a sophomore in high school if these two pothead guys who did everything bad would 20 years later be preaching and discipling people to transformative faith in the gospel of Jesus, I would have told you you were crazy. 
This passage on introspection and sin is placed squarely in the middle of mission so that we will realize that what we do individually doesn't just affect us, but everybody around us. The Spirit-filled community will not be satisfied with sin in verses 12 through 16. We'll live in awe and wonder of Jesus. At the end of verse 11, you find a transition. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Hopefully, no more deaths among the members of the church. Hopefully, these pallbearers lost their job. But signs and wonders were done to the point that the people in the city were so overwhelmed by what they heard was going on in this church, these followers of Jesus of Nazareth, that they would bring people out on their cots, people who could not do it themselves, people who were not mobile because of their illnesses, hopeful that even the shadow of Peter walking by would fall on them and they would be healed. As we learned in chapter 4, Peter and John knew well, as, rest, as well as the rest of the disciples, that they didn't have power in and of themselves. They healed in the name of Jesus. So, let's think about this just very simply for a minute. What happens when the Holy Spirit holds sway in the hearts of His people? Jesus is glorified. What happens when the Spirit exposes sin and it is confessed and repented of? Jesus is glorified. What happens when a collective people like ours pursues holiness and stops being satisfied with hidden, illicit sin, Jesus is glorified. That's what happened here. And notice in verse 14, and more than ever, I mean, we've seen thousands of people added to the church so far, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This was the best church growth strategy ever. It had nothing to do with a cut of the apostles' genes. It had nothing to do with the band. It had nothing to do with marketing materials. It had nothing to do with clever sermon series. They were the most unslick group of church leaders you could have conceived of. They're doing public outdoor preaching. Some of you went to Ohio State or have spent time down around there. Occasionally you go down to the Oval and there'll be a guy with a megaphone and he's preaching hellfire and brimstone down on Ohio State's campus. Even us Christians sometimes look at people like that and think, you are nuts, man. That's what the apostles were doing. Getting thrown in prison praying for more. As we'll see at the end of chapter 5, they're pretty thrilled that they have the honor to suffer in the name of Jesus. Their church growth strategy was to preach and to pray and to deal with sin seriously and to love one another sacrificially. That's how their church grew. A Spirit-filled community will live in awe and wonder of Jesus. They regularly, the apostles, hung out in the area of the temple. Solomon's portico, this was a colonnade along the eastern border of the temple courts. So they were doing this publicly. Like they weren't hiding in the upper room anymore. As we will learn as we go further into chapter 5, the Jewish council didn't know what to do with all this because this was all happening very publicly, and they were worried. Verse 13 is a little confusing. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Who does that mean? Does it mean that the people of the city didn't join them? Well, that can't be because verse 14, multitudes didn't. It probably means that some of the believers were so freaked out by what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira and the things that the apostles continued to do that they weren't quite as public with their faith. 
But even the people, even the people of the city generally held them in high regard, and they were the ones being converted. There's a little hint here when such things start happening, we don't always know what to do with it. But God does His work. What happened as a result of the apostles walking by faith, no longer living in fear of man? Let's think about what Peter and the rest of the apostles could have done with this little scheme by Ananias and Sapphira. Well, we have a wealthy family in our midst, and we've got to coddle them. So maybe there's different rules for them. Maybe they get to live a little bit differently. In fact, if we ally ourselves to them in some regard, perhaps we can gain something. I mean, after all, Jesus did leave and didn't leave us a dukeship or earlship. We deserve something. That's not what they did. They rejected worldly goods. They rejected fear of man. It's easy to fear people who have power and influence and resources. They feared Jesus instead. And as they lived in reverent awe of Him and in wonder that He had rescued them, they led other people to transformation. Which is why in 1 Peter, Peter could look back and say this to the people he led. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This apostle who saw this husband and wife fall down dead because of a prideful lie would later say, as he reflected back upon all that Jesus had done through him and his companions, when we live like this, people will notice and they will ask questions. When we confess our sin and stop hiding and repent of it, we look different. When we share what we have, the extra things that we have, not worrying about having more than our neighbor, but sacrificially laying it down to help one another with genuine love, people notice. Whenever we live our faith out publicly, when we have opportunity declaring the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people notice and lives are transformed. The question, of course, for us is, are we living in such a fashion that people are wondering at all? Are we so infatuated and caught up in the culture that we don't look much different? Because we participate in a lot of the same sins. We hoard like the world hoards, and we stay quiet and don't challenge people in their condition and point them to the Savior. We live like that, nobody will ask us questions. Brothers and sisters, we have been left here to be transformed by the Spirit of God for the glory of God. Part of the reason we have not yet gone to heaven or Jesus has not yet come to establish His kingdom on a recreated earth is because we need some more transformation. The image needs some more restoring. But there's another reason, and perhaps even more importantly, we have been left here to proclaim, to tell others. This is not just for the leaders of the church, this is for us all. So not out of guilt or any sort of legalistic code, but are you? Are we? Are we using our resources of time and talent and treasure to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Individually in our lives, God brings lots of people into our paths with whom we should share. So I call you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, who should I share with this day? And as a church, we have work to do collectively, perhaps even some corporate exercises that we will be talking about soon in days to come.
How do we apply this? Well, first of all, we must practice deliberate self-evaluation as we walk in the Spirit. Ignoring or excusing sin has far-reaching consequences. One of the signs that we consistently look for in discipleship is self-awareness. Is a person aware of their tendency toward pride? Is a person aware of their tendency toward greed? Is a person aware of their tendency toward slander and gossip? Is a person aware of their tendency toward laziness? Is a person aware of their tendency toward isolation and a host of other things? So we walk in the Spirit. And we practice deliberate self-evaluation. This means that we live under the sway of the Word, as I encouraged earlier. It means that we talk back to God all the time. You say this in your Word. This is a way that I must change. Do this in me. That's what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, moment by moment, dependence upon the third person of the Trinity. And we need not fear practicing deliberate self-evaluation, for if we are in Christ, we've already been pardoned. The reconciling promise of the gospel is ours, so we can take deep, dark looks inside knowing that we have been forgiven. The loving pardon of God is ours forever, and He has given us His Spirit to transform us. Conversely, if we ignore or excuse sin, not only do we damage ourselves, but we damage our families, and we damage this church family and our ability to enjoy and proclaim the glory of God. And secondly and lastly, we must guard against boredom and ritual, pleading with God's Spirit to fill us with fear and wonder that will grip our hearts and intrigue others to wonder at the hope that is in us. It is so, so easy to simply go through the motions of our faith and possess little fear, reverent awe of Christ, or wonder the hope that we have been redeemed by Jesus. If there is no awe, if there is no wonder, then we repent today. We ask for God's Spirit to transform us, for it is so, so easy to be satisfied with a, a service like this where we sing a few songs and pray a few prayers and see a cute little boy dedicated and hear, hopefully, a representation of the Bible that is accurate and to walk out and say, we've done our duty for the week. But if there is no wonder, if there is no awe we have not understood. If our lives are marked by boredom and ritual in our faith, then today is a day of repentance and renewal. And as we change, others will wonder at the hope that is in us. And as Peter says, we must be then ready to give an answer for this hope that lies within us. And so, God's Word, though ancient, is still relevant for us today. Us sinners in need of pardon, and us ambassadors who have been left to declare the mercy and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we look to Him in faith, and may we walk in obedience and all, and wonder at the One who has made us His own. Let's pray.